Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. And now on the Drops Podcast, part three of PMF for CPGs. Matt Tumbleson is here to talk about product market fit and consumer packaged goods. Let's start the show. Someone asked me, well, when you hit product market fit, can you do it in D2C? Because this is when D2C was like all the rage, right? You don't have to go through selling it to, to the retailers. We can just make a website, sell it. And, and basically, I would, I would look at this as the question of almost, can a P&G copy a Dollar Shave Club, a native, etc., to achieve massive success online and then go in store? Because what they're thinking is product market fit, if we could get it digitally and then prove that we have it, then we can go to these retailers where it's a much larger investment. We're in 10,000 stores. We're obviously producing significantly larger quantities. If we have product market fit digitally, then can we then determine, all right, it's lower risk for us to invest in these retailers. And so if someone asked me one time, one of the finance and accounting people, what percent of a market do you need to capture to determine you've reached product market fit? And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it in terms of a specific percent. Obviously, we've got crossing the chasm and all these other discussion points that we have. But a specific percent, I saw it more as an efficiency where you have a pain point, you have the best solution, you can market it to people, they buy it is the best, they continue buying it. Once I prove that, and it's a big enough market for me as an individual investor or a giant PNG, you invest. You've hit product market fit, you invest and go. So I started thinking, how what percent of the total market would we need to reach? And fast forward multiple years, and I decided that it's less of the total size of the total market and more of the size of the market who would be purchasing online, which is obviously a subset of the larger market, right? If we can reach a small enough subset of that that is still big enough for us to believe it's true. So not 10 people, we're talking thousands who have an opportunity to buy this in a market against other potential solutions. So they see us against other people, they choose us and they choose us again. So I need to go through a full repurchase and they're still happy which online equals four and a half stars that equals in a survey. You can do a deprivation test. If this didn't exist anymore, how would you feel about going to the next product? You can do those same types of things in a digital environment with e-commerce, like a Shopify store, for example, that then tells me that the product is good. That doesn't necessarily tell me all the other parts of the business, the distribution, the brand, but guess what? I don't ever have to worry about distribution and brand at Procter & Gamble. We have the best distribution, the best brand marketers on the planet. That's not an assumption I need to test. So what I need to know is that that product is good. And there was a lot of stepping on toes because at, at a PNG, the product is obviously R&D. And 
brand the role that I was in is like the CEO or the executive over it, but you let the R&D team do their work. And so when we started working together, it was magic. It was magic. But that what I was looking for product market fit was an online subsegment that is e- easy to reach, chooses our product against other potential products. So that means we're in the actual market. And this could be on like an Amazon 3PL kind of thing. It could be on Walmart Marketplace, which like a third party can sell their product. This can be on Google. This can be in anywhere that a consumer could basically enter in some search terms, which indicate they have this pain point and solutions come up, us being one of them. They choose us at a pretty good cadence and they give up their old product and then continue using ours. That to me is indicative of product market fit in CPG. From there, you can then invest. And again, the brand, the distribution, I never had to worry about that because we have the best people. P&G has the best people in the world, but I wanted to make sure the product was the best for people who used it. They became almost addicted to it. That to me was PMF. Do you have a number? I get the logic of, hey, we don't have a market penetration number that says when we reach this market, we have PMF. You have a, did we capture a customer? Did that customer become a repeat customer? And it's a little bit simpler, but then it gets complicated. How many times? And does that change based on the product? How many times do you say, well, they have to be a repeat customer this many times for us to consider themselves a customer? A company like a Netflix or a subscription model, them being a customer for two months is not enough to say you've got PMF, in my opinion, especially if you're running a series that's dropping like once a week. How do you in a CPG say for this product, I need, let's say it's blades. I'm just going to pick a category. How many times does that person need to be a repeat customer before you say, yeah, we're, we're, we're good. The customers decided to use us now and they're not just experimenting. Yeah. And so in CPG, traditionally in the large companies, it was if you use their product at least once per year. And when I heard that, I was like, guys, <laughs> no. That is not indicative that this is a customer, you know, and and it was just kind of like standard practice that you'd be reselling it to them every year, you know, the trial and then the trial again next year and then the trial again. And they might do this for 30 years at that point. If they do it for 30 years, it's a customer, right? Like they're just not buying very frequently. So I, I try to kind of look at this in a different way. And it is unique per product because blades, I don't have experience on the blades side. All I have is just observations and, and I've heard. I could talk more to like the lotions and potions side of the business, which is how frequently does this pain point come up? So if we're talking eczema, psoriasis, for example, that is a almost never ending cycle where you're just like battling flare ups. So going without product is going to be very painful. So for me, if they buy it and they all they needed to do was see results and then they bought it again, that was good enough for me, at least in the beginning. Now, I'm not planning on a $20 product purchase twice. I'm not planning a $500 lifetime value from that. I'm planning a $40 lifetime value. I want to be realistic, but I am classifying them as a customer or in our case, a consumer. And the as long as the churn doesn't become crazy what we're actually doing is we are not selling products we are transitioning people from their current product to our product right so i look at it as we have achieved the ability to transition people from their previous or their current product over 
and I don't have to worry about this doesn't work for me, this isn't right, I will be able to make some form of a modification in the future if I find a subgroup of people that don't necessarily like it. smell, I have sensitive skin, whatever it is, I can do a small tweak to my hero product in the future. But if I look at it as I'm just pulling them from their current product into ours and they stay for at least a short enough period of time that I know that they can't be pulled back, I'm good. So again, I want to super, super clearly answer your question. It does depend on the product. In the beginning, the scrappy side of me likes to see at least one repurchase. I need good enough data to know what the churn rate is going to be and have confidence in that. So sometimes that might be two months, that might be three months. As time goes on, and if you think about it, we're almost like gating investment. Okay, we've reached one repurchase. I am now going to amp up my media spend here. Like we've, we've found something good here. I'm going to pull that person, put them in a lookalike audience on Facebook, pull in similar people. Now I get to two. Huh. Okay. I'm going to adjust my lifetime value. I'm going to adjust my acquisition cost because now I can go up, right? Maybe I can start reaching some of those other audiences that might've cost a little more. Maybe I can go a little more broad. Oh, now the average is four months, right? So as I go, I start the lifetime value of that consumer also grows with it. So I can start unlocking other things and investing and growing this business. It almost happens like floodgates. You open up just a little bit. Things are going great. You can open up some more, open up some more. So that to me, it's almost like there's like a step nature to product market fit and CPG where it's kind of similar in the startup world. It's investment, right? We want to invest in the right things. So I start with one. And then two repeat, three repeat. And if I see there's a, a problem and people are jumping, I'm going to re-revise and, and potentially say we had a product market fit, but something happened. And then we'll either investigate that or go back to the drawing board and try and identify it again. It's that continuous learning loop that we know from software development and agile. We learn, we iterate. This is the lean startup methodology. I'm going to put on my founder's hat for a second. I'm going to ask a question. Here's the founder's hat question. Let's say I am a CPG founder. I may be going to make a skincare product like a, a moisturizer. This comes in a tube. A tube of moisturizer. This is going to last four or six months. How does that founder collect the data to say, They purchased twice. What would be the experiment you would do? Would you recommend, hey, offer it in a trial size, a much smaller size as an intro if it's a new product to see what would the word be here to shorten the repurchase cycle to get that data? How would you advise? I've got a skincare cream, new kind of moisturizer that's for this particular group of women or men. Let's say it's a men thing. Let's say it's men because it's kind of a new category. Men moisturizer cream. I want to know if it's hitting product market fit. It's a cream. This tube will last you six months if used daily. I need to get data faster than that. What would you recommend that I do? So there's two things to that. And the first is if we look at product market fit as I see signs, it's okay to invest more, right? Like just translate it into what you would do if you achieved it. And I'm waiting six months. That is not good enough. And so we actually did this on a product where it was supposed to last for a month. Some people were using it. It was gone in two weeks. Other people, it was like two to three months and it became an issue for us because it was hard to determine that. So we actually created a quiz and it's like, how frequently do you have this pain point? How much of your body does this cover? 
so that we could then have a profile for this consumer and then make an estimate of how frequently we believe that they would be making the purchase. And so then we had, it's, it's just a couple of buckets. It's either once a month, every two months, every three months, et cetera. And so we were looking for the once a month as our initial indicator. And it was really, really hard. We ended up shrinking the size again for that exact thing. For the consumer, it's great if it lasted for six months, right? For us, we needed to know if this was working. So the other thing on that is, depending on the skin condition, if it's dry skin, dry skin is a condition. And you either have it or you don't. It's either getting better or it's not. And this product either works better than the other products. So maybe I have to put it on once every two days instead of once every day. You have to also understand that not only is the consumer buying the product, but it's actually doing what it's intended to do. Oh yes, I do notice less dry days. My skin is more moisturized more frequently. And then you also have to ask them, this is something interesting that I learned. Have you stopped using the product? A lot of them, no, not yet. Or yes, I stopped using it when I noticed my skin was better. But you know what? This product doesn't work because within a couple of weeks, my skin was bad again. And it's like, well, right, this isn't medicine. This is like an ongoing thing. So there's really unique nuance with consumers and how they use products, especially for skincare, to determine, is this actually working? And then do they notice the, the benefit of it, the value of it? You know, my skin is better. Okay, what helped you with your skin? Well, I started drinking more water. They would almost always have these kind of like random things that they thought it was, and it maybe was, but it probably was that product. So you also have to make sure that they see the value of the product and know it's the product. So for us, one thing we tried doing was speed to results. Speed. So normally if a product would take, let's say three weeks, vitamins are a classic case of this. Oh yeah, take it for six weeks and see how you feel. I don't remember how I felt six weeks ago. Consumers don't either. So our goal was immediate relief. They're having a bad day. They put it on immediately. They feel better. And so that was our goal. And obviously a couple of iterations before they ended up getting there or we'll get there. But you also, it's, you have to show them the value and they have to know this is the solution that did that for me which is a little bit tricky, you know? I'm putting it back on the founder's hat again because you're dropping a lot of gems here and you just touched on the feedback loop. I know the customer bought something. I want to collect feedback on how they're using and I'm spotting different usage patterns. How generally do you then go from getting feedback and incorporating into, I need to make product changes because of this feedback? Really broadly, how do you do Yeah, that? man, this is one of the hardest things in CPG because once a consumer, so not someone in a clinical trial, but once a consumer has that product, we are looking at almost like a full development cycle to, to make changes. And that was something that was very surprising to me when I first started working for a large corporation. I was like, no, we can just put this out there. And I was expecting the first person comes in or maybe the first 10 people. We see a pattern of, I don't like the smell. Okay, so maybe we like batch A gets this smell, batch B gets that smell, and then, or fragrance as we call it. And then we would test and see the overall satisfaction between those. You cannot do that. So we are collecting the feedback and, and then it will go to R&D and then a formulator, which is like the position in, internally, who's like making small batches of the products, they might be able to do something quickly. They're fast. They're scrappy. These are some awesome, awesome, very talented people. But before it gets back to market, it's going to go to those oftentimes clinicals first, maybe a couple people, then maybe 10, then maybe a hundred, then it has to go through our own internal safety. There's a whole process to make sure that this is good. So 
I pushed and pushed and pushed for this product to get to market as quickly as possible, thinking we could make those iterations in the future. And my coworkers who had been there for many, many years were like, you cannot do that. And I was like, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. You can't. You can't. It, you, there are just certain things that you have to follow. So that's why in the pre-launch, in trying to find indicators of product market fit is so critical. You want with your first three-person clinical trial, how much do you like this product? How much would you pay for this product? Like, what would you do if this product went away? We also, we did introduce something new towards the end, which was seeing if someone asks for more product, like without prompting them, or seeing if they would pay or ask to pay without prompting. That was an indicator that they really wanted this product. And so that became more business as usual for us in terms of just like new products. But when you were dealing with that, like it was like 18 months for a new version to come out, you got to do it way up front. Now, one thing I was pushing for is let's ask our current consumers what's missing and or let's use the behavior of coming to our website to provide us additional information. So maybe we have these five hero products. Let's offer three or four additional and ask our current consumers, would you buy this product from this brand? Like just some indicator that directionally we should go down this path or that path. Or they just think it's real, add to cart, sorry, we're out. And we're just collecting votes, right? A lot of pushback on that, but I do believe that it's one of those areas that the startup mindset it's safe. It's not harming anyone. It's getting real world consumer feedback and it's starting to lay the groundwork for product market fit from real consumers of your other product before you even invest the time. So that feedback loop can then also help make the future iterations that much faster. Whenever I think about the idea of a product having product market fit, if someone buys it like once a year, I actually think about WD-40. It's like, how does this product, it's like, it's the sim most simplistic thing in the whole world, but I know if my house doesn't have it, my life is miserable. And so I think that that's what's really fascinating about CPG over any other type of product space that's out there, is that it really can exist with someone who just buys it once a year. And just on that note, knowing the frequency that the average consumer makes the purchase helps a ton. And you can do that by just doing a survey, like a broad survey of a large audience of people, like a 1Q. And one thing I found is under the WD-40 aspect, those types of products, they're available in the store, but like very few people walk down that aisle. What we saw over and over again is the people who frequently go to that aisle make up like 85% of the sales, and it might be 2% of the total shoppers of the store. It's so crazy how it's like teeny tiny percentage of the, of the total shoppers make up such a large portion of the sales. And the opportunity there is for the other 98% of the shoppers who might buy it once a year to buy it more frequently. How do you get someone to buy WD-40 twice a year? That would almost double the business, you know? So it's a really interesting pain points to solve for. This is going to be another podcast. I'm not going to drop too many things in this one, but the way Matt goes about identifying an opportunity by going down a grocery store's aisle, like these are the drops. Like there's so many things to learn here. All right. The last question for you. I'm trying to start this new segment, like a mini segment. We talk about product market fit and I always study why companies fail because I think as a strategist, you need to know all the pitfalls. It makes us better, right? We can talk about these use cases. And I don't think as a practice, as an industry, we talk about failures enough. So now I'm kind of trying this new thing. Here's a question for every guest now. Tell me about something you tried and failed. What'd you learn from it? Um, you would need a whole 
separate series and podcast to just go through all of the things that I tried and failed. But one that I am really sad, but happy, it's, it's weird, bittersweet, let's say. I, I sold my, my first startup text. I, we were still being, and I was still on the board and still working with them. And I was trying to discover what I wanted to do next. And I had been interviewing all kinds of people with on their nail care routine. And that's when I said, okay, you know what? There's something here. There's something about the nail salon. It's kind of a weird experience. You have to pay before you get painted. I was like, oh, this is a whole world of like crazy experience that really needs some technology to make this thing better. And so I started interviewing people. I think I interviewed maybe 25 to 30 different people. And just to understand like what their routines are, if they go to a nail salon, if they do what their payment. And so I launched Hellabella in 2000, probably early 2019. And I was like, this is a runaway success. I'm going into these nail salons. I mean, we'd used all kinds of really scrappy, like we weren't just like knocking on doors. We were like sending customers to get their nails done. And the nail salon didn't even know they were on the app and they didn't really care because we were there like paying them with envelopes of cash. And we just, we like Wizard of Oz, this thing, and were able to learn like how to get into a nail salon, what the value props were to them, like all kinds of stuff. I was so proud of all of the startup experience and how we applied it to this. And I went and tried to raise money. And because I had just sold my my last startup and I had a, not a huge network, I'm not a Silicon Valley guy, I'm a New York City Silicon Alley guy. And so I was somewhat networked and I could ask people for intros and stuff and call after call, people were telling us that the market was too small. The market's too small. I'm like, it's a $9 billion market. It's, it's too small. It's too small. Over and over again. I would press them on it to understand what big is. Like, give me an example. And I was like, we're going to start here. And they're like, but are you going to go deep, like vertical? You're going to own your own nail salon. You're going to get into payments. You're going to get into... And I was like, I don't think we need to. And I was just so obsessed that I had created a solution for a problem and that consumers liked it. And then nail salons liked it. So it wasn't the product market fit. It was the size of the market. And I thought 9 billion was huge. It wasn't until I sat down with one of the partners from Primary Ventures, Jason, and he gave us feedback later. And he was like, guys, let me show you how we look at the size of this market. It's how many nail salons want anything to do with technology. Of those, you know, just breaking it down. And he's like, your total market might be $100 million. I'm inventing the number, but it was something really small. It was crushing because we just thought total market, you know, 9 billion. And even that would be too small for a VC. The fact that it was like just broken down into smaller pieces. So we got that information. We decided that we were going to go into a much larger space of just personal wellness or wellness and COVID happened. And so the part that was supporting our business was the nail salons and within four to six weeks, my co-founder and I decided we're shutting this down and it was really hard to shut something down that fast, but there was no end in sight. The entire industry was completely upended and looking back, I think had we focused on building a profitable business instead of raising VC money, 
we would have probably had a $50 million business on our hands with just a couple of us working and we'd be all recording this on my boat right now in, in Biscayne Bay. But I was so obsessed with going after the VC money and thinking product market fit is step one, VC money is step two. It's almost like you do the one and you unlock the other. And that was so unfortunate because it's, it is a huge opportunity. And I think the businesses that get into it and fail, it's actually because they end up raising VC money. And then you just, it's, it, it does eventually, you know, back you into a corner and then they get shut down because they can't repay that back. So Matt, you just dropped the insight that's been, the thing. this has been like our main point. Like we say it over and over again. There's something really powerful in building, just building a good business. Like it doesn't have, not every business needs to be a unicorn. Not every business needs to be a billion dollar idea. Um, Cause the simple fact is, is that also, how do you ascertain something's a billion dollar business? It's because someone looked at you, looked at your numbers and said, over time, we think you're a billion dollar business. Well, the thing is you can grow into that. Right. And I think that's the thing that people mess up. They think that day one or day 100 or day 730, someone has to claim that title for them. But the reality is, is that it's OK if you don't get there until day 3095. Right. It's OK if it takes you a long time to build a very logical, very customer centric, very useful business to the world. And I think that's what's really great about that. So, Matt, I thank you so much because that's something that I, I can't tell you how much how important that message is that people need to hear about building really good businesses. That's the, that's all that's, that matters. And taking on debt, even if it's from a VC perspective, often puts you in positions where you can't make choices that you would prefer. You end up making choices to make sure that you are appeasing the people who are giving yeah, that money. 100%. V said it. That's perfect. My goodness. I think that the new narrative around that should be when a VC says, where are the billion dollar opportunities? We are finding our way to a billion dollars. We are tackling small niche problems now. And when we do that well, then we will buy our right to tackle another problem for that customer. And that's how you build a billion dollar business. That's how Spanx did it. They had one product and they found their way into other opportunities to delight their customers. This was amazing. I gotta do this again. Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast.